At our Good Friday service, Eric took the opportunity to thank you all for your contributions to our Lenten devotional. And I wanted to do the same right now. Special thanks to Barb Rudolph for the idea and the preparation. But I want to thank all of you, your contributions, every single one. So well done, so meaningful. It is a privilege and a joy for me to pastor a body full of people who make contributions like that. I thank you. Now, I also want to thank the worship committee for a marvelous time of worship and their leading of it. And of course, we know that he is worthy And we know that he is who he said he is because he is risen. Let's try that again. (laughs) He is risen. risen I, I I knew you knew the response. There you go. Turn now. You've heard this in Matthew's gospel. Turn now to the 20th chapter of John where you will hear it again in our reflection this morning after we pray together. For all that you have done, and especially that which we have observed and celebrated over this holy weekend, Lord Jesus, we are in awe and we are thankful for without this we are nothing we are nowhere you are all in all you have accomplished that which no one else could and we rejoice in it we pray now that in our reflection of it again that you would bless each one and that you would move and deepen each one that we might be your faithful witnesses and share this gospel truth with all repeatedly, continually speak to our hearts and our minds now from your word we pray in Christ Amen. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead so the disciples went away again to their homes In studies, 
on the passion of Christ. You understand the passion of Christ is, is all of that which happened to him, that he went through, that he endured from his arrest through his death. In studies on the passion of Christ, Jesus' death is sometimes described as tragic. The reason for that, I would suppose, is that it was also wrong. Jesus' arrest, his suffering, the scourging that occurred, and ultimately his death on a cross were the result, without question, of hatred and deceit and injustice. And we are all guilty. Jesus did not deserve any of what was done to him. In fact, he and he alone deserved the opposite. So often you hear the language of desert coming up in reference to people and one another and, and things that we feel like we deserved or we didn't get, etc. We deserve nothing. He deserves everything. But he didn't receive it. The overwhelming majority of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and especially their religious leaders hated him. Even though he came only out of love for all. They lied egregiously about the author of truth. Indeed, they committed the most grave injustice. We are guilty too. Of the most righteous, the only perfectly righteous man to have ever lived who was of course more than just man and this all happened and in it all it was all well tragic however if you understand something of the literary character of tragedy then you know that Jesus' suffering and death was anything but tragic. It's often referred to that way, but it was actually anything but tragic. Literary experts will tell you that a tragedy, you think, for instance, of Shakespeare's tragedies, that a tragedy is the story of a great person who is overcome by a fatal flaw. The tragic plot usually has a protagonist facing a dilemma, a dilemma that will often involve a demand for a choice to be made. A tragic hero makes a tragic choice, not the right one, but will often make a tragic choice facing a dilemma that inevitably leads in a tragedy to catastrophe and suffering. Well, Jesus certainly suffered, yes. At the end of the tragedy, the hero, and this clearly doesn't apply to Jesus, the hero usually receives some measure of moral perception and growth as a result in the very suffering that he goes through or she goes through. So I said Shakespeare, in William Shakespeare's, for instance, play King Lear, the king is a classic tragic figure. He divides his kingdom among his three daughters. Two of them seek to increase their shares of the kingdom by charming their father. But the third, Cordelia, refuses to descend to this gross outward form of flattery. 
Only too late does King Lear realize that Cordelia is the only one of his three girls who truly loves him. The play ends with a tragic king weeping over this virtuous daughter's corpse. Now aware of his tragic mistake, he cries, I might have saved her. Now she's gone forever. Well, I think you can see why the death of Christ was not a tragedy. Jesus did not suffer because of some moral failing of which he had none and of which we all have many. He did not make a tragic choice that led to his death. It was according to the purpose and design of the Father that he carried out in obedience to the Father. He did not cry out in the end from the cross, What have I done? He triumphantly declared, John 19 and verse 30, It is finished. Mission accomplished according to the plan of God, conceived in eternity past and carried out just as intended. In the gospel story, we being sinners, we are tragic figures. We suffer misery because of our failings, because of our sin. Jesus died on purpose, out of love, to free us from the tragic story of our sin-cursed lives. And I use that word story. We all have a story. We've all been sinners under judgment. Those who have believed in Christ are no longer such. These stories are true. They're not just fairy tales. So then, what kind of story is the gospel of Jesus and the cross, which is told in John chapter 19? I know that's not our text. That's before it. But you know what happens there. I mean, Jesus, he dies. He dies on the cross. What is the story of Jesus and the cross told there? The answer is found in our text in John 20, where the death of Jesus is seen not as a tragedy, This is going to jar you, perhaps, unless you understand. It's seen not as a tragedy, but as a comedy. Pastor John has lost it. (laughs) Don't misunderstand. In calling this a comedy, I'm speaking now again in terms of literary identification, just like literary identification of a tragedy. In no way do I mean to demean the cross as though to say that what happened to Jesus was laughable? Anything but that. A comedy in literature is a story, true or otherwise, it is a story that has a happy ending. Oh, oh yeah, John 20. Very happy ending. Comedies in literature begin in prosperity. Generally, this is the case. They descend into tragedy, and then in the end, they rise again happily. Shakespeare's comedies certainly contain humorous lines, funny jokes. But they are comedies because they start up They go down, and then they rise up to a happy ending. Understood in this definition, 
the greatest of all comedies with the most happy ending is the Easter story found in John 20, found in the end of all four Gospels. When we read of the resurrection of Christ and the victory he secured over our great enemies, sin, judgment, sorrow, and death, we are reading a marvelous comedy against those things. But, despite its happy ending in John 20, in chapter 19, the ending there is in joyless despair. Jesus died and was buried, and as we learn in the other Gospels, all the women who remained faithful felt that they could do was to return hoping to anoint his body. He, he's dead, but we'd like to honor him and anoint his... I don't know how they were thinking this would be accomplished. He's buried, he's in a crypt, he's behind a giant stone, it's guarded by guards, but they return thinking they want to anoint his body. Mary Magdalene comes first and finds the great stone covering the entrance of the tomb rolled away. Not expected, but there we are. Despite the very second-class status of women in first-century Israel, as well as throughout the entire Roman Empire, it is women who are privileged to be the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Because they hold a special place in his heart. Ladies, you hold a special place in his heart. The men, you will recall, went into hiding after Jesus died. The brave, tough men went into hiding. It was the women who came to him in their devotion and in their love. Now, Lots of popular and, I would say, irrelevant literature, including the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar and the best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, assume an excessively emotional and even a sexual relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, named here. There is not a shred of evidence, biblical or otherwise, to support that line of thinking. It's not thinking, speculation, nonsense, sexual relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Not a shred of evidence. Many writers assume, with perhaps a little more justification, but I think they're wrong, that Mary Magdalene was a forgiven prostitute. This is assumed because she is often associated with the sinful woman that we read about in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, even though the Bible never identifies that sinful woman as a prostitute. And I don't think that's Mary Magdalene anyway, but all that we know about Mary Magdalene is at the cross, in, at the empty tomb. And the one text, according to Luke, chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, she was formerly possessed by seven demons, and she also gave financial support to Jesus out of her means. So we know that she had... Prior to knowing Jesus, she had been a demon-possessed woman with seven demons. And, but at the same time, once she gets to know Jesus, she gives to Jesus out of her own means. So she's obviously a well-off woman, probably not a prostitute. Well, it's Mary finding that empty tomb 
and running excitedly to tell the disciples who then themselves come running. And, and prominent before them are, are Peter and John. John is the one identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There are reasons for that. I'm not going to spend the time. You should know that. They came running, did Peter and John and, and the others, but they come running... And when they did so, clear evidence of resurrection. This would be true for the women who came. This is certainly true for Mary Magdalene who was there. This was true for Peter and John who come running. Clear evidence of resurrection was the last thing that any of them expected to find. Three days and three nights later after Jesus had died. It is often argued by critics, it is often argued by doubters today. These who would dismiss Jesus' resurrection as simply untrue, fairy tales, wrong, absolutely impossible, no sane person could believe it. Those who think that way today have often insisted that the disciples made off with the body of Christ And then they claimed that he had risen. This was exactly the storyline that the Jewish leadership, after the empty tomb was discovered, told the guards to say in order to preserve their lives, well, the disciples came and overpowered them and made off with the body of Christ. But this does not square with Scripture the clear facts of the Word of God in all four gospel accounts in the slightest. This was not what happened. Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, as I've said, John himself, John, the author of this gospel, ran to the tomb, John outrunning Peter to get there, and they ran to, and we often refer to it as, and, and right enough to do so, as the empty tomb, because Christ himself was no longer in the tomb, but in fact... And this is important and emphasized in the account. The tomb at this point was not literally empty. Oh, it was empty in terms of Christ not being there. But it was not empty because the grave clothes were still inside. John saw this from the outside. It says that he came, the disciple of Jesus' love that John came but did not go in but saw from the outside Peter always impetuous arriving after John couldn't run as fast apparently he went right in and he saw the linen linen wrappings which had been on Jesus' body and he saw the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head that face cloth lying separate from the rest that wrapping would have not been attached to the other that was wrapped separately and thus it was found separately Peter saw all of this up close was the first one What Peter and John saw in the empty tomb was proof of the final and clear resurrection following his death of Christ. And what they saw was proof of the first resurrection ever. Now why do I say that? Because what happened here was different from the raising of Lazarus or the raisings of various others that had already occurred in time prior to this rising of Christ. They are all raisings, but this is the first resurrection. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, he emerged, remember, with his hands and his feet bound with linen and his face still wrapped with a linen cloth and Jesus had to order those who were nearby to unbind him John chapter 11 verse 44 Jesus resurrection was of a different kind entirely his was not what we would call Lazarus's properly is a resuscitation he was dead but he was resuscitated 
but Jesus's was an actual resurrection into glory having a glorified body right there Jesus did not wake up from death in his previous form of body as John Stott explained in his book basic Christianity and boy if you're looking for a good book to read basic Christianity he explained that Jesus body was transmuted into something new and different and wonderful because of what he did see that is Peter in that empty tomb that was not quite empty he was moved but because of what he John did see in that empty tomb John we're told believed instantly and so should we you don't have to have been there the evidence is clear and so should we believe the evidence is not only clear it is undeniable well it's been denied but by undeniable I mean it is not justly denied seeing the grave clothes John Peter seeing the grave clothes undisturbed and intact hardened and chrysalis like due to that mixture of spices the grave cloths had been packed with when Jesus was buried seeing those grave clothes as though still wrapped around the body of Jesus but there was no body John believed why wouldn't he what else could what John saw mean yes Peter saw too but what else could it mean the language in John 20 and verse 8 that the linen cloths were lying there you see that in your text lying there indicates that wording indicates something carefully kept in order now that's very significant because the image I think most of us have of the grave cloths is the grave cloths are just kind of lying however in the two no something carefully kept by God in order that's how those cloths appeared if Jesus had somehow revived and torn himself out of the grave clothes meaning he never did die and he tore himself out of the grave clothes why then they would have been strewn all about the grave or bunched up perhaps if on the other hand Jesus body had been removed by grave robbers as Mary Magdalene seemed to fear look at what she said hear the passion in what she said they have taken his body we don't know where he is well if that's what happened the same theory that the Jewish leaders gave to uh, the, the Roman soldiers it's impossible under those circumstances to imagine why when John came and Peter entered the grave why the grave cloths would have been left behind at all they would have just gone in and taken the body away I mean he's dead they did it presumably to try and prove that he resurrected so they immediately hurl go away or if they were really thinking we got to make this believable then then maybe they tear it off and they leave the grave clothes but not there's the grave clothes looking like they're around a body but no body now understand the disciples as I've said John tells us when Jesus died and was buried the other gospels tell us the disciples of all people who knew him best did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead they surely believed in resurrection on the last day John 11 verse 24 it's not that they didn't believe a resurrection was coming but none of them expected that Jesus after he died would rise then the last day hasn't come yet that's going to be the end they had seen after all Jesus power to raise the dead 
they could believe that he and others would rise on the last day. But the various gospel accounts are quite clear that once Jesus was dead, then, first century, none of them expected to see him alive again. Their minds were changed. Initially, Peter, John... Their minds were changed by the persuasive evidence that was available to them. And it's available to us through the gospel's written eyewitness accounts. And the apostle John being the first of them to believe, doing so instantly when he saw the evidence in the tomb. They're linked right there. That's when he believed. He sees the evidence. It couldn't be clearer, and he believes. Now, John's account here describes the progression of faith in the episode by means of three different Greek words. I don't normally tell you the Greek words, but I will in this case because while similar in meaning and in English similar there are three different Greek words blepo, theoreo and horao now you know blepo in verse 5 simply means to look and see look and see Theoreo describes Peter's experience, not John's, Peter's experience upon seeing. When he, Peter, entered the tomb, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He saw, words for seeing, this verb, theoreo, gives us our word, theory or theorize theorize meaning and here's what the Greek word means this word meaning to wonder regarding something's meaning the first one is look and see John looks he sees he believes evidence is undeniable he's risen Peter however sees the same thing And the word used, very important, means he regards what this means. He thinks about what this means. Peter looked at the grave cloths, just as John had, and he thought about what he was seeing. He didn't instantly believe. He thought about it. Now, maybe he didn't think about it all that long before he came to the same conclusion John did, but that's what we're told. Initially, Peter thought about it. Now let's remember again, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so persuasive, including what Peter and John saw, a very important part of the evidence, what Peter and John saw in that tomb, which was empty other than the grave clothes, that it has been described, this evidence of Jesus' resurrection has been described by many as the best attested fact in history. And I think that's true. Lots of non-believers want to deny that, but I think that's true. Many, many legal scholars, and I have read some lengthy, interesting books, many, many legal scholars have scrutinized this evidence in the light of legal standards, what you would use to prove the truth in court, perhaps to get someone condemned to death. What level of evidence must be required for that? And they've compared the evidence that we have here to that. One of them, such legal standard, a famous English jurist, Sir Edward Clark, wrote the following. As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidences for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again, in the high court where he served, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. But then, why aren't we told that Peter believed immediately like John believed immediately? The evidence is overwhelming, it would seem. His perhaps, maybe it was brief only, hesitation to believe 
think about it, may have had to do with the embarrassment that Peter felt because of his denials of Christ after Christ had died. Troubled by his own lack of faith, it took him thus just a little longer to conclude what the clear evidence in that tomb indicated. Now John, on the other hand, tells us of his belief in the resurrection by using, I'm not going to forget it this time, I told you once six things and gave you five, the third word, horao. That's John's word to describe his seeing and believing. That word, horao, can mean to see with comprehension and understanding. Oh, that's interesting. John sees, he comprehends, and he believes. Boom. No other conclusion made sense. He believed. John looks at the grave cloths that prove the reality and the indicated nature of the resurrection, and he believed. Jesus' body must have been raised to glory passing through those grave cloths left behind and leaving them behind undisturbed. The wording here is very precise. Peter, therefore, wondered. John looked with faith in response to the evidence before him. From the words that are used in our text, we could imagine Peter standing over the grave cloths and saying what perhaps you and I might have said. I just can't believe this. Oh, my goodness. Sort of with that sense that it's true, but I, wow, I just don't believe this. John, prompted by that same evidence before him, realized instantly what it had to mean, and he believed immediately. John could have said, wait for it, Christ is risen. Thank you. I know we're not used to making responses here at Grace unless your name is Harold Shook, but sometimes, sometimes something is just worth a response. Thank you. But then we come to John 20 and verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. If if you yank verse 9 out of context, it might be easily misunderstood in terms of much of what I've said already. Some have concluded, wrongfully, that verse 9 perhaps means that John's faith, John's belief was neither real nor complete at this point. Oh yeah, he believed, but not, and he believed immediately, but not really. So he wasn't responding to the evidence, which is the way the text seems to lay this out. Why? Because his belief apparently did not comprehend the Bible's teaching on the subject, the Bible's prior teaching, the Bible's prior prophecies on the subject. So I want to suggest, with verse 9, that John's belief was real. Oh, yes. Oh, he believed it. But his belief at that instantaneous moment was not complete. Now, what do I mean? Friends, who among us today, perhaps you have believed in Christ for a long time. I have since like the sixth grade. Who among us would say, I believe completely, fully, in every aspect, with total understanding and no element of question or doubt? What verse 9 may indicate is not... Rather, is that not until seeing the evidence in the empty tomb did John really put together 
Jesus' own predictions of his rising and the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. Again, in context, it doesn't have to indicate, well, he, he really didn't believe. No, it was at this moment that he realizes all this stuff that they were grasping to understand and they didn't really expect Jesus to rise. It's true and it's what God's word has been saying. With what was now plainly obvious and truly unquestionable in what he saw, he believed and put it together, verse 9. When we think of our own experience, whatever witness was involved in bringing us to believe in Jesus, God establishes the relationship. But whatever other witness was involved in bringing you to believe in Jesus, our faith must still go on after the initial acceptance and belief to be built up on the solid rock of God's Word. Perhaps you were first led to Christ because of a change that you noticed in some friend of yours who became a Christian before you did. Perhaps you were led to Christ because you recognized the absence of truth and love in the world and you saw something different in the church. Lots of people, and lots of people are told to think this, see only hypocrisy in the church. But there have been others who have seen a difference in believers in the church. And perhaps that was instrumental in your coming to faith. It isn't what caused your salvation, but perhaps that was a part of what God used. These and many other legitimate witnesses living and enduring faith in regard to these must always come from the truth and the life that is in God's Word. Verse 9 is saying what's important here is to see what God's Word has said about all of this. They hadn't understood, these disciples, what God's Word is saying. Jesus is telling them things consistent with what God's Word is saying and they aren't getting it and they didn't expect Him to rise. Now they see the evidence and John believes and I think now he begins at least to put together what God's Word has been saying. We do this for our Christian lives ongoing after initial faith. We put together with more and more clarity and more and more understanding all that which is true. We have believed. We genuinely believe. That's real. But we grow in that belief. In the Word of God, especially. So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Not the Word of Christ hearing down through the generations from Jesus standing there in Palestine, literally, but in the Word of Christ, the Word of God, Romans 10, verse 17. But Peter and John had that enormous privilege of standing in the grave from which Jesus was risen. And yet, even after noting his own coming to faith. John reminds us of our collective essential need to understand the scriptures. Verse 9. You believe, lots of different witnesses perhaps, you believe, but we have an ongoing need to understand, verse 9, the scriptures. If our seeing is really to be Believing in some kind of fullness. So Peter and John needed to ground and feed their faith on the word of God. They did it. So do you and I need to do the same. Inform our faith which is real, on biblical teaching. If we as Christians are not ongoing, constantly studying hearing the teaching of the Word of God, we're not feeding what we ought to be feeding. It should be a daily endeavor. The resurrection of Christ further provides a new power for godly living. 
As I've already explained, Jesus' resurrection was not like the earlier risings. Lazarus came forth from the grave in his old body. And in the power of his, it's done by God's power, but he then goes on living in the power of his old life. It doesn't have to mean non-believing life, just old life. Not the resurrected body into glory. In time, Lazarus would die again. Jesus, however, emerged from his tomb in a glorified body that will never die. Thus will be the same with us after this life. James Montgomery Boyce said, Today, we need not think of Jesus as the vulnerable Jesus of history. Jesus died, but he died once for all. He was buffeted and spat upon and cursed, but that will not be repeated. We pray today to a powerful Lord, to an exalted Lord, and I would add, of course, to a living Lord. This Lord will return, this is boy still, will return one day to take his own to be with him in glory. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. The disciples would learn the full biblical significance of the resurrection as Jesus went on teaching the scriptures to them in the days that followed, and then they would continue to do so, and others would do so through the reading and study of God's written word. They would learn that Jesus' resurrection was merely the first of a great multitude. Christ was raised, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. The first fruits, of course, that is the initial crop that comes out of the field during the first of the two annual harvests in Israel. The feast of first fruits... God meant for us to give thanks to him for the harvest to come when the first crops come in. And when I say that, this was commanded of the Jews. We're not commanded in the same way, but that was the meaning. So Christ's resurrection was the first fruit of God's true spiritual harvest. The physical harvest is but the picture of the spiritual harvest in which all believers the spiritual harvest of all ages, all times, will be gathered. Coming. It's coming. Stay tuned. Part two to the movie. Therefore, when someone is born again, their spiritual resurrection indicates that they will participate in the future glorious bodily resurrection of all who belong to Christ. Paul explained that what every believer has to look forward to, he explained it by comparing our present bodies with our future resurrection bodies that are modeled on the glorious body of the resurrected Jesus. Paul said, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 49. And notice that John refers not merely to the Bible's teachings of John 20, verse 9. Not merely the Bible's teaching of Jesus' resurrection, but to Scripture's witness to the necessity of the resurrection, verse 9. They did not understand the Scripture that he must 
rise again from the dead. It was necessary on Jesus' part that he should rise from the grave so that he might triumph over his and over our enemies. And that his gospel claims might be vindicated. And that the Father's acceptance of his atoning blood shed at the cross should be proved. The Father's acceptance of such. It is finished. God the Father is satisfied. Paul said to Jesus, said of Jesus, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, Romans 4, verse 25. That means that having died for our sins, Jesus was resurrected to present the atonement of his and in, rather, his blood to the Father. He is resurrected to present the atonement in his blood to the Father. That is what works, as it were, our salvation, those who believe. This is all in order that our sins could be forgiven. It was necessary also for the disciples that Jesus should be raised so that they would receive power to believe and then to spread the gospel. Finally, John concludes our passage today by telling us that the disciples went back to their homes, verse 10. And yet, because of this resurrection, now their lives would never be the same. Praise the Lord. Donald Carson explains the immediate significance for their faith. And I quote, Their master was not in God's eyes a condemned criminal. The resurrection proved that he was vindicated by God and therefore he was not less than the Messiah, the Son of God that he claimed to be. There was more to come in Jesus' post-resurrection appearances and his ongoing relationship as there, the disciples' living Lord. For all this, it was necessary, verse 9, that he should be raised so that his people would be not only those who are forgiven in his blood, but those who live and witness the power of his resurrected life. Those who witness it and live it. And that means you and I today who didn't get to see it literally. And at the last... It is necessary for us, verse 9, that Jesus should be raised and it is necessary that we should believe and rely on his resurrection power. Paul lists faith in the resurrection as one of the central and necessary doctrines of Christian salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, verse 4. Christian faith is never belief in the dead letters of mere doctrines. Doctrine's important. Scripture's important. But it is never belief in the dead letters of mere doctrines. Much less is it reliance on dead legalism or self-righteousness. Saving faith is not self-righteous because we cannot earn it. Saving faith is a relationship to the living Lord and Savior and the experience of his heavenly power for righteousness and peace and joy and so much more in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, verse 17. It is necessary for so much. Because of the resurrection, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20. So based on what we have seen in the empty tomb, we can grasp, I think, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was not a tragedy, but a comedy. We have seen how a comedy 
not so much a funny story as one with a happy and glorious ending. A tale, a reality of course in Jesus' case, in which tragic sorrow, this is a comedy, is replaced with true joy. If you do not have true joy in the resurrection of Christ, what's wrong? Christ's resurrection is the source of the purest mirth and delight. It is spine-tinglingly exciting. It is excited as your little two-year-old gets at lots of stuff. The resurrection promises that God is making everything right that has ever been wrong and that history is moving to a far grander ending than anything we would ever have imagined were possible. Certainly not possible outside of him. By entering through the stone that was removed and looking in faith at Jesus' resurrection evidenced so convincingly by those remaining grave clothes, we begin the glorious story of eternal life that is described in the book of Revelation. There will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning. There will be no longer any crying or any pain. The first things, the former things, have passed away. Revelation 21 verse 4. In this way, the life of Christ really becomes like a movie, and literally, that ends with a wedding, a kiss, and happily ever after. But we think, we say, we cry. Isn't it true, nonetheless, that before that ending, which is only really an eternal perfect beginning when he rose, isn't it true that before the ending to come in the life, the new life, in the new heavens, and the new earth, that we Christians must still expect trials and sorrows in this life. It's not all just a happily ever after ending. Yeah, the ending, yes, is. What about the trials? Yes, that happens. That's real. Expect them, we're told. But Dwight Moody told a story that shows the difference it makes to know and to be assured of the ending of this early earthly life for Jesus and all of those who are his. A bright teenage girl was suddenly afflicted with a very grave disease such that she became paralyzed and nearly blind. Her hearing, however, was not impaired, so she could understand the conversation taking place between the doctor and her parents. The doctor remarked to her parents sympathetically, she has seen her best days. Poor child. Upon hearing this, this teenage girl a believer in the crucified and resurrected Jesus suddenly spoke. No, doctor. My best days are yet to come. Amen. When I shall see the king in all of his beauty. It hurts now. It's painful now, but I will see the king. <clears throat> Knowing this great gospel truth, she had joy and laughter in her heart, even in the face of enormous tragedy, even on the threshold of death. If we will likewise trust in the gospel of Jesus' resurrection, he not only assures us of our own better days to come,
despite all the trials, despite all the hardships, despite all the frustrations of life, which are real, I don't minimize them. He will also give us the power, even in them, to live for his glory in this dying world. Therefore, let us so live because he is risen. That's a good place to close. Let's pray. You are risen, Lord, and it makes all the difference. There is nothing in us that deserves this, that earns this, that contributes in any way to our salvation. All that we do, all that we are privileged to do, is receive it, believe it, accept it. And in that resurrection, may we live to the glory of your name, to the witness of who you are that many others will see and be drawn to you. And by the work of your spirit, we pray, be saved and grow in the scriptures as well and pass on to others what they have received. This is the mission in this life. We have eternity to enjoy being with you directly We are still here on this mission. May we live it out, I pray, by your grace and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand. You should rejoice in these things. You should take great joy in these things. And you should go out and share these things. Depart in that endeavor. Amen.